and welcome. Good morning. Yes, and good morning. You know, see, I didn't say good morning, did I? Good morning. Welcome. And uh, as you can tell, we are not in the courtroom today. We're in our new space. And uh, I want to thank, first off, we're going we're gonna to have a dedication prayer and thank the Lord here in just a moment. Of course, all our thanks go to the Lord. But I want to thank our supporters, all of you here locally as well as online who have supported us with your prayers and, and other support and donations over the years. It is truly an, a work of the Lord that we are in this space. Uh, if you can remember where we were and where we started uh, 12 years ago now and where we are today, the Lord has been leading through this process. I want to thank the Common Reason Board and uh, our building committee, which put in inordinate hours, uh, volunteer time, uh, planning, looking at, um, at uh, materials, researching, examining products, uh, volunteering time to install. And uh, so one person uh, did so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours uh, uh, volunteering. And so Dean, I want you to come on out first, and I'm going to have the whole building committee come up here. But Dean Scott, come on out here. Come on up here. So... This this space and all this electronic stuff and the and the of course, you know I teach, but I wouldn't reach all the people online that I reach if it wasn't for Dean. Dean uh, is constantly. I don't know if you know the story. I'm going to have to take a little story. But uh, in in 2004, we actually started a Sabbath school class at the College of University Church. And that, uh, that class started in the band room at Spalding, if you know where Spalding, which is an elementary school. And, uh, and we had to walk across campus to actually get to the, to the Sabbath school there. And the first person to come to our class is Kathy Ritland. She walked in, and she's still here and part of our class. And Kathy, we appreciate you. And within a few weeks of holding class, and the way it started, for, if y'all don't, don't know, is uh, we started recording our classes with a little pocket MP3 recorder that we sat on a chair. <laughs> and it just recorded ambient noise. And it was, I've got to tell you, very low quality. Uh, hissing, and you can imagine any types of noise in the background. And within a few weeks of starting the class, Dean came and visited the class, and he afterwards said... Uh, you know, could I help you out with your sound and your recording? <laughs> and he had his own little pocket kind of homemade kind of sound. What do you call that thing? Mixer. mixer, a mixer that he made. And he brought that and we had a little mic and we started doing it that way. And it just kind of built over time. And then eventually, um, eventually we had Dean and his three daughters over to our house. And his oldest daughter met Michael. Uh, where, where's, where's Stephanie? My, Stephanie's right here, and there's Michael. And, of course, now they're the parents of our grandkids. Okay? So you see, it, you see how the Lord leads and all that, right? Okay? And uh, Dean has been constantly working to improve the quality of our, our audio-video production and access and distribution. Our website manager, he runs the website, so all the quality of the website, and uh, you notice it's developed and improved over time. Dean has been integral in that. And so Dean spent so much of his own personal time in here doing what you see, building. He built this out behind me. This, uh, Michael. Michael, help with that, Giselle. Yeah, so... But, so we want to thank Dean. I want to thank the rest of our building committee. So Karen Covey, if you could come forward. Lori Atkins and Michael Land and Francesca Brewster. If you all would come forward. So you can all see. Yes. 
So Karen and Lori, where's Lori? We're all working in the back. I know, they're all working in the back. So the people online are probably going to go down right now because all three of these people are working our system today. And uh, Lori is... Uh, is, uh, is so I want to thank... Uh, you can't imagine the hours that they put in. Uh, looking at when you look at the tile, when you look at the granite, when you see the cabinets, when you see the colors, when you see they, this committee work to pick all this stuff out and uh, and 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 spare me the, the the time and the energy and the mental drain so that I could focus on the things that I focus on. So I want to thank you all personally, and uh, let's give them a hand. Thank you. All right, thank you all. Thank you. Our purpose in purchasing and renovating this building is to continue to share the final message of mercy to the world, to advance the truth about God's character of love to, to others. And I'm, I, am, I am saying this. Are you recording it, Dean? Well, I hope it's being yeah, it's recording, so even if it's not broadcasting now, it'll go up and people can see it, so that's good. And therefore, the purpose is to advance the final message of mercy to the world. And so we're going to have a prayer of dedication. And we know that God does not dwell in buildings made by human hands, but in our hearts and minds. And so we're not dedicating this building as a dwelling place for God, but as a workspace for us to carry out his purposes for us in our ministry. And that's what we're really praying about. So let's, let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven... This space is not ours, it's yours, and we are your stewards. We have dedicated ourselves to you, Lord, and now we dedicate this space to you to glorify your character and advance your methods of love. We ask that you would dispatch angels to watch over this place and hold back all evil influences that would, would uh, attempt to infiltrate and undermine your purposes for this space and your will at this time in history. We ask that uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit here today upon all the people here in attendance and as well as all who will come to work in this place as time unfolds to worship you here in this place, but also for all those who are supporting us online and advancing this message in their local communities, we ask your Spirit be poured upon them as well so that the world can be lighted and you can come soon. We love you and we seek only to honor you and to say about you what is right. To that end, we ask for your presence, your inspiration, your cleansing from all sin, and your power to succeed in taking the truth to the world. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And we close with the words from your friend Peter. Whoever speaks, let it be with God's words. Whoever serves, do so with the strength that God supplies so that in everything God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. One of the things that we'll be able to do again now that we're in this space is, you'll notice in the lobby, if you come here personally, we will have free resources. And anything in the lobby that you see you want to take for yourself, you want to take to share, it's free. Grab it, take it give it away. That's what it's for. And, then, and if you remember, we used to do that before COVID uh, over at the courthouse, and then we weren't supposed to kind of put things out for a long time. But, but here we will have a, a, a stocked resource in our lobby that you can pick stuff up and go and share with people.
let's go ahead and then start our class. And our class today is uh, lesson four in the quarterly on death, dying, and the future hope. And the title is the, the Old Testament Hope. The Old Testament Hope. When you hear the Old Testament Hope, does that trigger something different than your hope? They were looking forward to Christ's coming. This is what the the quarterly says. It says, The Old Testament hope is grounded not on Greek ideas about natural immortality of the soul, but on the biblical teaching of the final resurrection of the dead. Are they suggesting the Old Testament hope is the resurrection? It sounds like they are. A literal bodily resurrection. Any any questions pop to your mind if you think of the Old Testament hope is resurrection? Misses the mark. Sorry. Misses the. It misses the mark. It misses the mark. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have the resurrection if the <clears throat> Yes, you wouldn't have the resurrection. And, and and is it only the righteous that experience resurrection? No. Or do the wicked also experience resurrection? So everybody experiences resurrection. So it must be something more than that we have to have our hope in. And isn't it in fact that the resurrection that we're looking for to the resurrection of the righteous, isn't that actually a piece of the larger hope? And what is the larger hope that the resurrection is a piece or part of? The Christ comes and shows us God's heart and character, and through that it helps to dispel the lies, and through that... It draws us into a relationship with him. Did you all hear that? That Christ comes, shows us the truth, dispels the lies, and draws us in a relationship with him. Well, well described. How would we describe the larger hope? The larger hope as restoration of unity with God. at one reconciliation, cleansing us individually from sin, cleansing the planet from sin, cleansing the universe from sin. Isn't this really the hope? We hope for a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous, where there's no more pain, suffering, and death, not simply resurrection. Do you know a lot of religions teach resurrections of various forms? Rebirths, you might call them rebirths. Reincarnations. What's a reincarnation? It's a reanimation. It's a resurrection in a, in a new form. Many religions teach this, but, but they, reteach it, they teach it into a future world in which there's ever, never-ending cycles of conflict and death and suffering. That is not the hope, is it? No, no the hope is in a sinless world, a world in which there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more heartache, no more death. Hope of, of perfect restoration to God's design. Thus, the Old Testament hope is the same as the New Testament hope, the promised Messiah, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. sin of the world. That's right. Takes away the sin of the world. Restores us to righteousness, cleanses the universe and the planet from all deviations from God's design. So it's not simply in a resurrection. It's in Jesus. And the eradication of all deviations from God's design. And this larger hope, all humans can share in even those who don't need to have any hope for a resurrection, like Enoch and Elijah and all those who are translated. They don't need to hope for a resurrection, do they? 
But they do need the hope of a universe free from sin. And that's the ultimate hope. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Who believes in me, even though he believes in me, will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the end of the quote. That's Jesus' words. Do you believe this? If you live, all those who believe in me will never die. Even though he dies, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Does that sound confusing? How would you explain this to a non-believer? How is it you can, if you believe in Jesus, you will never die, and even though you die, you will live because you haven't died? Because you haven't died. It's the first death. It's asleep. You just slept. Okay, it's the first death. It's asleep. Okay, I, I agree with that. How do you explain that to a non-believer? Anything that you can relate to in the world today that most people in the modern world, anyway, are familiar with, and you can explain it to them. Computer. Computer. A computer. How would you, how would you explain it from a computer? I'm wanting you to, I've said this enough times. In medical school, it's see one, do one, teach one. So I've said this many times, so it's your turn to, to, to teach. If you're, you're, how would you explain this to somebody who, who's a non-believer? How is it that you guys can believe in a resurrection? Like putting a computer on sleep mode. Okay, so a computer that runs out of power. Okay. Okay. It goes into sleep mode. Can you, can, you, can you even take it another step? Is it possible to destroy the machine itself and still bring it back to life? Yes. How, how can you do that? With the data stored in the cloud. With the data stored in the cloud. If you have your computer backed up on the cloud, even if someone destroys the computer, you get a new hardware, you download the data, you've resurrected your computer. This is what the scripture is describing. Don't be afraid of the one who destroyed the body. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 28, but can't destroy the soul, Greek word for soul, psyche, from where you get psychiatry and psychology, your, your software, your individuality. So those who have their bodies destroyed, they cease to live what we call death, but their individualities are backed up on the cloud, and the Bible refers to the heavenly servers as what? Lamb's Book of Life. The Lamb's Book of Life for the heavenly servers, where individualities are backed up or stored. And then when Jesus comes, Paul said, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope about those who have fallen asleep. The Lord will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. He'll bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is what it says in First Thessalonians chapter 4. In the voice of the archangel, the, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. In one passage, the dead coming down with Christ in a state of sleep, rising up out of the grave in one passage. It's a beautiful passage if you understand the tripartite nature of a human being. Body, hardware, soul, psyche, software, spirit, pneuma, from where we get pneumonia or, or pneumatic means wind or breath or breath of life, computer, electricity, energy. And thus, when we die currently, the energy goes back to God who gave it. The, the body disintegrates into dust. The psyche, the soul, is safe and secure with Christ in heaven on the heavenly servers, <coughs> waiting for download into a new 
hardware, and I'm telling you guys, I'm so looking forward to a hardware upgrade. <laughs> this more, and, and, and the Bible tells you, 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal puts on immortality. This corruption puts on incorruption. We get a new body that will not get tired, will not have aches, will not have pains, will not need glasses. Yes, no more need for surgeons. You also get debug software. <laughs> debug software. <laughs> so we have a real rational explanation that we can point to that actually makes sense and people can connect to. And the Bible writers wrote this thousands of years ago, and it is exactly how objective reality works. It's really brilliant. Now, the lesson states... In the third paragraph, quote, We know that in the beginning God brought life into existence from non-life through the power of his word. I want to clarify this statement, at least for me. It's absolutely true. God was not and is not dependent on external matter, whether it's living or non-living matter, for him to create life. He's not dependent on that. He did not use that. He spoke, and it came into existence from nothing. So the lesson is correct in that, in that if that's what it means, that, that both living and non-living matter, plants, animals, living matter, and non-living matter, rocks, and, and the sun, and so forth, uh, were spoken into existence by God. It did not come from pre-existent material. So God did not create life through billions of years of evolutionary pressures. That's not how it happened. However, life does not come from non-life. The way the lesson said it, we know that in the beginning God brought life into existence from non-life. No, he didn't. He brought life into existence from himself. And God is a living being. And God gave of his own living energies to create life. And this is a, a, an important testable scientific point if you want to test the theories of godless evolution from creation. We can test and prove that living systems and organisms come from other living systems and organisms. And science proves that no living organism has ever come from a non-living substrate. It's never happened. Can't be proved. So it's true. God did not need other materials to build life. But when God spoke, he dispersed energies of his own to create whether it was living or non-living matter. So life came from, from life. Anybody question that or have a comment about that or did I confuse anybody with that? Okay. Sunday's lesson, it, says, it asks us to read Job 19, 25 through 27. And it reads as follows. I know that my Redeemer lives... And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. When you hear this passage, what would you say to someone who would suggest that Job is just an allegory? And at best, this is simply Job's wishful thinking, his hopes, his mindset, but it certainly doesn't describe objective uh, human state or, or, or reality. What would you say to somebody who, who would suggest that about the book of Job? Because sometimes that's suggested about the book of Job. How would you meet that critique? 
how would you say that if somebody critiques, that's what Job thought, that's what Job hoped for, that's what Job believed, but that doesn't describe reality. That's just Job's mindset. How, how, would you de- how would you defeat that? Because these are the types of criticisms you can get. But isn't he sharing about being made new again? So the old, he says, my skin is, is gone. He is sharing that. And how do you know this is objective reality that the Bible is describing inspired by God versus it, God inspired Job to tell you what he thought about it? You get this uh, description about the Bible conveying what somebody thought. In places of the Psalms, when the psalmist prays for God to destroy his enemies, and they will say, yes, God inspired him to be honest and show you his honest heart's desire, but it certainly isn't God's uh, mindset that's being described at those prayers. It's the the mindset of the the psalmist being described. (laughs) So the same criticism comes to, to Job here. How do you defeat it? It's not a trick question. It's very straightforward. It's easy to defeat. Well, go ahead. (laughs) You don't take passages in isolation. This passage does not stand on its own. There's 66 books of inspiration here. And scripture stands cohesively with other scripture. And so, is is this the only place that is described a resurrection? Do we have in scripture actual historical accounts of people being resurrected. (laughs) Multiple ones. Old Testament resurrections, New Testament resurrections, ultimately Jesus' resurrection. Moses was resurrected. We have him on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. So we have, if you believe the Bible is historical as well, and we have real accounts of real people doing real things, then we have historical evidence resurrection is real. That's the first, first place. Moses was a real physical being raised in a real physical body. And of course, the other Bible writers also tell us that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we are the people to be most pitiful, pitied. What a pitiful religion we have to believe in something that isn't true. So we have all of that testimony. And so I defeat that simply by saying, you don't argue in isolation. You put, the, put Job's words in the context of rest of Scripture, and I think it fits quite nicely with the descriptions of the rest of Scripture, what happens at death, and what we've described about the information technology, so forth. Monday's lesson, the lesson asks us to read from Psalms 49. I'm going to read, and we're going to go through this verse by verse, and I'm going to use the remedy, but use whatever version you want as you track along with this. Well, I'll make some comments as we go along. It says, Hear this, everyone. Listen carefully, every person who lives on the earth, both young and old, rich and poor alike. I will tell you real wisdom because I understand how reality works. You want to know why and how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were 10 times wiser than all the other students there or or candidates being evaluated by Nebuchadnezzar? It wasn't simply because they ate, ate vegetarian food. That's not why. You understand that, right? I've seen that argument made. I know many vegetarians that are not ten times wiser. Don't you? Come on, be honest. Okay? Yeah, but vegan. Yeah. It was because these four worshipped the creator God and understood that God built reality 
And God's reality operates on principles that never change. And they understood and studied those principles and sought to live in harmony with them, what we call, what we call today design laws. That's what made them wiser. It wasn't superstitious rules. It wasn't superstitious, mystical things. It was real. A real God who creates reality, and reality has objective laws that are constant. And they understood those things, and they were 10 times wiser. Whereas all the other religions of the world, they teach superstitions, things that don't make sense. Irrational things, things you're supposed to believe without thinking. That's not how they operate. That's why they're 10 times wiser. And so this is what the psalmist is saying. Uh, I will show you real wisdom because I understand how reality works. I will use my insights to discern profound proverbs and bring forth the hidden meaning like music from a harp. Why should I fear in the days when evil abounds, when the depravity and villainy of my enemies surround me? Those who believe they are spiritually superior because of their wealth and boast of their great riches. Do we live in a world today where villainy abounds? Where wealth and power are valued above moral character? And they boast about their power and their wealth? And they criticize people who want to hold a, a, a different standard? Do we need to fear? The psalmist says, real wisdom, you don't need to fear. No one can ever cure their own terminal condition. No human can buy the remedy from God. The cost to procure it is, is beyond our means. Why? What is the cost to procure the remedy or the solution for sin? What is the cost? Christ's death. Christ's death, okay, but, but Christ's death was certainly the remedy. He paid the cost or the price, if you want to use that language. Well, what was it? Renewed heart. A renewed heart. Christ needed to have his heart renewed? <laughs> no, we need a renewed heart, but, but Christ did something. He purchased something in some way. He paid a price in some way. What was it? Was it a legal price? Was it a monetary price? He didn't value his life more than the principles. He didn't. That's right. He didn't value his life more than the principles. That's exactly true. He restricted his, his uh, being into humanity. He restricted, yeah, yep. He restricted his divine powers in the restrictions of a human body. Yes. He, okay. he developed a human character. He, de- he did develop a human character. What's the price? Separation. Separation from God? Not separation from him, but he would be with us forever, not where he was before. So, so the price was to be with us forever, not in heaven forever, becoming permanently... You know, for God so loved the world, he loaned his only begotten son for 33 years. And he gave. So, so you guys are describing. So I'm pressing here. You guys are me truths. Jesus was given, permanently human, permanently surrendered, omnipresence. Jesus will, will, gave up that ability for all eternity future. He is not present in his own divine prerogatives or abilities anymore. He's present via the, his represent, representative, the Holy Spirit now. Prior to his incarnation, Jesus, but he gave that up, permanently restricted to a human body. I, it's an infinite sacrifice we can't understand. But why? Why was it necessary? How, did, did giving that up, well, you know, sin is really bad. Hmm. And bad, it, it's really bad. It's, 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 it offends me, the infinite father, 
An infinite father uh, being offended requires an infinite price. So somebody has to give an infinite sacrifice in order to pay the infinite offense that happened to me. And so Jesus gave up his, his infinite omnipresence for all eternity future, in, for, for all infinity future. He sacrificed an infinite sacrifice to pay the infinite price to the infinite God. Is that, is that worth describing? He, he, he restored trust and that God is who he says he is. He restored trust that God is who he says he is. I agree with that completely. But because we sinned, because you sinned, to connect us back to God. There was a lie. That that is—that's the function to connect us back to God. There was a lie. There was a lie in heaven, and they—they told lies about God so much so and so diffusely that a third of the angels believed it. Yes. So what's the price? So what's the price? The price was death. Okay. Why? 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 How does it? So. So. Okay, so who was the price paid to? Who, who was the death paid to? What did what does the price of his death accomplish? He gave perfect human character for a mind transplant to give us a mind. Oh, I like where you're going now. I love where you're going with that. Oh, I love that. So, but but all of you are right. You're all right. Just a matter to me putting putting the pieces together. What is it that was causing death for humanity? Separation. Separation from God. We call that sin. By okay. choice of believing a lie. By choice of believing a lie. Did you choose to believe a lie about God? So Eve chose to believe the lie. Okay. Severed that trust relationship. Christ came back down to say, yo, dudes, stop, because that was a lie. This okay. So part of the price is a revelation of truth about God, which destroys lies. Okay. Destroys, which is Satan's power. Hebrews 2.14, by his death, he destroys him and holds the power of death that is the devil. Okay, power of death. Life eternal, John 17.3. This is life eternal. That might know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ in that sense. So eternal life is knowing God. Knowing is that intimate unity with. So if eternal life is knowing God, then eternal death is not knowing God. So Satan's power of death are the lies that he tells about God that keep us from knowing or break our connection with him. Okay. So Jesus, by his death, destroyed him, holds the power of death by revealing the truth, which destroys the devil's lies about God, wins us back to trust. So part of the price was the truth necessary to defeat the lies that cause us to rebel against God. But that's not enough. (laughs) What we said back there was an important piece. It says in Hebrews 8, 10, is it 8, 10, 9, 10? I think it's 9, chapter 9. Uh, no, actually. Would you like a copy of this wonderful... Yeah, no. Um, so tell me the reference, guys. Once he was made perfect, he became... Hebrews 10, right? Or Hebrews 9? 5. So once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Well, let's look it up. Once he was made perfect. Hebrews 9.10 is the symbolic system. Was okay, only so Hebrews, Hebrews 10. I'm, I'm blocking on the verse for some reason. It's unusual. I'm so disappointed. Yes, I know. Me too. <laughs> It'll come to me in a second. But once he was made perfect. Hebrews 5. Yeah, Hebrews 5. That's right. It's Hebrews 5. Um, 9 and 10. That's it. Hebrews 5, 9 and 10. There it is. That's why I had the 9 and 10. I was going with the verses and not the chapters. Okay. All right. Hebrews 5, 9 and 10. Once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Wasn't Jesus always perfect? No. He was always sinless. 
Bible perfection is maturity of character. Character cannot be created. It must be developed. And so in Eden, Adam and Eve were sinless. But they were not mature. They had to, by choice, develop loyalty to God or rebel against God by their choice. Jesus, as the second Adam, came, was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. And when he faced the temptations as a human, because it says in James 1, God cannot be tempted. He was not tempted in his divine self. He was tempted in his human self. He faced those temptations with human abilities and overcame them with human abilities as the second Adam and developed a perfect, sinless human character. And that was by developing that trust relationship with the Heavenly Father along the way. And he was able to... So I don't like the way you phrased that. You said that was by developing a trust relationship with the Father. I think Jesus was born with a trust relationship with the Father. Okay? We develop one. He had one at birth. Okay? He was not born... This is where a lot of people get prelapsarian, postlapsarian, lapse. You made a lapse in judgment. Okay? Prelapsarian. Did Jesus come with a, a nature before Adam lapsed into sin? Postlapsarian. Did he come with a nature after Adam lapsed into sin? And the answer to that question is a, it's a, it's a trap question because it's neither. He did not come with a nature like Adam's before the fall, and he did not come with a nature like Adam's after the fall. And you can get there uh, to the conclusion simply by looking again. God is the God of reality. Look at objective reality. How did Adam come into existence? God formed him out of the dirt, breathed into his nostrils, a breath of life. He became a sinless human being. How did Eve come into existence? Taken from a rib side of Adam. Okay. How did you and I come into existence? Sinful mother, sinful father. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Psalm 51. How did Jesus' humanity come into existence in any of those three ways? No. No. It didn't come in from dirt, didn't come from a sinless being, didn't come from two sinful parents. It came from a, Galatians 4.4, Jesus was born under a woman under law, law of sin and death. He was born to a sinful mother, but his father was the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was born with a unique human nature that was capable of being tempted at all points just like we are, yet without sin, it says in Hebrews 4.15. But he was also capable in his own ability to resist those temptations because he had a nature that came from the father. Adam did not have a nature that could tempt him. Jesus had a nature he partook of through Eve that could tempt him. Do we see evidence of that? Or am I just making declarations? Do we have historical record that shows that, in fact, it was true? Did he get tired? Did he get fatigued? Did he experience human anguish in Gethsemane that tempt him? Yes. Did Adam experience any of that? No. His nature was not like Adam's exactly. It's not like ours exactly. It's unique. He was able to face the temptations from our fallen nature, but he was uh, born of the Holy Spirit at birth, so he had a trust relationship with his father, and there was no part of him that resonated with the temptation. He was tempted, but he didn't like it. You ever been tempted with something you liked? Okay. Do you ever, have you ever had a habit of sin? Did Jesus ever have habits of sin? No. Which sins are the hardest for you to, to overcome? The ones that you've never participated in before that are new or the ones that you've habituated? Okay. Again, Jesus wasn't coming here to be the second Tim Jennings. He came to be the second Adam, the new head of our, our species. 
And thus, again, the price that was paid was the price necessary to overcome the death-causing principle that Adam put in the species, eradicate it, and restore the life-causing principle into the species. And that price was one that he had to reveal the truth about the Father in order to destroy lies and win to trust. He had to be tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And he had to choose with his human capacities and abilities to live out God's law of love perfectly. And this is why he had to die. Because at any point along death's approach, he's being tempted. And what's the core to the carnal nature? What's the core temptation? Self-preservation. Self-preservation. Survival the fittest. Me first. That's the core. It's anti-love. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. And at every point along the, the temptation towards death, if at any point Christ exercised power, and he had the power, he told Peter, no one can take my life. I lay it down freely. Understand that statement is not, I'm committing suicide. No, he did not end his own life. He simply refused to use power to stop others from ending his life. There's a big difference. Loving others more than oneself. That's right. He loved others more than self. He gave his life freely. But if at any point, because he did have the power, he wasn't like the two helpless thieves. Two helpless thieves, they couldn't do anything. But Christ had already said, hey, I could call my father and 12 legions of angels would come and deliver me if I wanted I have the power. He had all power, John 13, given to him. Now, I want you to understand that temptation. If you want to get a sense of the urgency of the temptation, imagine somebody is drowning you. Literally, if you can imagine, if you ever had that feeling of suffocation, and you're being drowned, they're holding your head underwater, and you have a knife in your hand. How hard will the temptation be not to use it? You see, Christ faced temptation at every point like we are. No one can take my life. Not only did he not strike out with power that he had accessible to him, he didn't even think it. Mm. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. So the price was the price necessary to destroy the lies about God and to destroy the infection of the carnal nature that has so deeply embedded into our being and replace that with godly, self-sacrificial love. And Jesus achieved that for us. He was a true hero. And he was a true hero. And this is why he rose on the third day. Because the law of God is the law of life. And once he destroyed the death principle and restored the life principle, he could say to his apostles, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise on the third day. He did not say that looking through the portals of time, seeing the other side through a prophetic vision, he said that understanding the very nature of God's universe and the laws upon which God constructs reality to operate. In the same way, I can say, if I let go of this, I know what's going to happen. It's going to fall because that's how gravity works. He knew the laws and he knew that he was restoring the principle of life into the humanity he took upon himself. And in that same moment, then, the mask was torn away from Satan so that everyone saw that it actually was that selfish evil, I will kill him if I can. Correct. Satan was exposed as a liar and fraud at the same point. Boy, I'm, I am, uh, whew, got a lot to go for. Okay, next, next verse. So nothing we, could, nothing we could provide would, remember, we're talking now from the Psalms about wisdom, what real wisdom is. Real wisdom is, I'll show you how reality works. Do you see the explanation I just gave you of why Christ had to die? is an objective achievement of reality 
not superstition. It's not, well, he had to shed sinless blood, and sinless blood had to be offered to a, a, a punishing deity in order to assuage wrath, and then if you claim that, then what happens is in heaven somewhere, uh, a deity uh, proclaims that, that you, if you claim the legal payment, are declared to be righteous even though you remain unrighteous. That's superstition. That's not objective reality. When you come to Christ and you accept him as your savior, you actually have a a resetting of the motives and drives of your heart. The Bible uses the expression of dying to the old and rising to the new. The things you once loved, you begin to dislike and hate. And the things you once hated, you begin to love. And it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the righteousness of God. This is objective reality. We are transformed. We are regenerated. We are renewed. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. It's not superstition. It's real. And in a faith relationship, in a trust relationship, I will tell you there are quantum linkages between your operating system, your mind that creates energy, frequency, vibrations, and the Holy Spirit. And the more you focus on Christ and the more you love what he loves, the more your neural circuitries are brought into harmony and you resonate more and more on those frequencies and you become more in tune and your conscience becomes more sensitive. You can, you can in real time be impressed by the Holy Spirit to take certain actions. But as you begin to embrace the worldly, the godless, the vile, the disgusting, you change your neural anatomy in another way and you become more in tune with the, with the demonic You become more selfish, more fearful, more arrogant, more prideful. And you're more influenced by the demonic. This isn't isn't superstition. It's it's how reality works. Nothing Nothing we could provide would ever cure our mortal state so that we would live forever and never experience death. Understand, the Bible is saying that we can't fix this condition. We can't destroy the death-causing principle and write in the life-causing principle into our condition. We can't do it. But that's exactly what the world is seeking today. The world right now, the, the mega-wealthy leaders of our world are actively working on immortality for the sinner through, for, through genetic and cybernetic enhancements, creating various ways that their consciousness can be transferred into some new platform for them to continue to live. That research is active and ongoing. Continuing on. For all can see that everyone dies. The wise, the foolish, the thoughtless brutes, everyone perishes and leaves their wealth to others. That's verse 10. Do you understand what this text is appealing to? This text is appealing to observable reality. You can actually look in the world around you and realize no matter a person's belief systems or values or wealth or how they treat others, if you give it enough time, their body wears out and they die. Everyone dies. And no matter how much wealth they accumulate, they can't take it with them. They leave it behind. That appeals to your reason, doesn't it? Doesn't it appeal to objective reality? But the time in which we live today, right now, 2022, is a time in which reality is being denied. It is a time in which minds are being conditioned to reject what you can actually understand 
from objective reality and that is obvious to everyone. It's a time in which feelings and wishes and fantasies and imaginations and desires are being valued above objective reality. If a person doesn't feel one way, if they, if they, it doesn't matter what objective biology says or what reality says, they can proclaim that they are not a certain way and demand that everyone in the world accept their feelings as reality. This, understand, this is the world in which we live right now. It is claimed that their feelings, their subjective internal fantasies, is their truth. And if you question their truth, you're a bigot, you're, an, you're intolerant, you're a, 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 a modern-day heretic... And what's happening in our society, this process I'm describing, is not primarily about gender. That's not what it's about. What it is, is is it, it is a demonic, and I say that purposely, demonic assault on truth, on reality, and on your mind. It is to condition people. The goal is to infect minds with the idea that there is no objective reality. That everyone's subjective experience is equally valid and can determine their reality. That is the goal. If there's no objective reality, then there's no standard which anything can be judged to be right or wrong. There's no moral standard or there's no objective reality. It's your feeling. Well, you feel that's wrong, then it's wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me because there's no objective reality. In this demonic view, all perspectives are equally valid. And when this lie that there's no objective reality is accepted, it destroys the ability of intelligent beings to think discern, examine situations, and make intelligent choices for themselves and also to evaluate the trustworthiness and validity of another person's positions and actions. Can I trust them? Should I follow them? And so if you, if you decouple all of this from objective reality, the only thing left is authority of office. Power and authority. We believe because the one in authority said it. And we can't question it. Because there's no objective reality to, to uh, measure against. You must submit. And if you don't submit to the, uh, uh, the ruling authorities, you're a heretic. This is the dark ages. <coughs> The ruling church authorities declared certain things about the sun and the earth's relationship to it. And Galileo's science was heresy. How dare you question what the ruling authorities say with objective measurable evidence? Reformers, how dare you question what the ruling authorities say with evidences from Scripture? You're heretics. Understand the same demonic philosophy is happening in society today 
And the primary purveyors of the priesthood of this demonic philosophy is modern medicine. If you question the authority of the medical officers that hold governmental positions, you're a heretic. Your license might be taken away. You're an intolerant. No longer do we pursue truth based on the historical practices of both Christian ethics and medical ethics, which were based on objective, observable, scientific, testable knowledge that is proven true or exposed to be false, and we advance as the the testable truths are proven. Oh, no. We declare what we want to be true, and everyone else must accept the declaration because there's no objective reality. That's their truth. This is our truth, and we validate their internal experience as real. Understand, it's primarily an assault on minds. And the devil is working through the priesthood of this age. And the priesthood of this age are scientists and medical officers. They're doing the same thing with climate change. Climate change. Scientists. Totally. Yes. Yes. Galileo makes a great comment. He says, uh, in questions of science, the authority of thousands is not worth the humble reasoning of a single individual. There you go. Which is a powerful statement in this context in the world today. Yes, and so understand the pressures. Understand the pressures that your mind are going to fall, fall under. And if you don't understand design law, if your theology, if your belief in God is simply based on rules made up that are amenable to change, like human governments do, you have nothing solid to stand on. But if you understand the laws upon which reality operate, those laws never change. And you have the ability to discern what people are saying. You can test them against the design laws of God. Yes, a hand over here somewhere. Yeah, I have a question. We have a, you know, in, in our church, even in seven Adventists, different views. Sometimes when they come together, it's a little hard to come and to get agreement. So how we can deal with that? And we know it's only one truth. But sometimes we have that conflict in the church. When somebody comes with one idea, the other person comes with this idea. And they, many times the church got... So he's asking that even in the Adventist church, there's lots of conflict of different ideas. And, and only, the only conflict that really exists are operate people that are not operating on design law. The scriptures tell us there is a unity that's inherent in our faith. When we have the design laws of God, you will find that there really is not a lot of arguments about, is it good and healthy to evacuate a burning building? <laughs> there's not a lot of opinion about that there's not a lot of different divergent views uh, when you get into things though that are man-made made up stuff there's lots of different views okay and, and so what's happened in, in theology is it's approached to the view that it's rulemaking and rule enforcement not, not inherently built-in consequence to deviate from God's law when you come back to the design element I find that no matter where I travel, and regardless of denominational affiliation, there is unity upon the design laws of God. There's division when we have imposed rule systems. I'm going to finish this, and that really is one of the major thoughts I want to get to in the class today. 
Uh, it says, though they claim the earth is their own, their prized selfishness, sin-infected world will not last. They will die just like the brute beast. And notice again the philosophy of this world. The philosophy of this world is that the planet must be saved. And that the problem in saving the planet is the people. The people are destroying the planet. Therefore, if we're going to save the planet, we have to do something to the people. Restrict them, uh, take their liberties, call the population, control them. In other words... We want some people because we need people to clean for us and cook for us. <laughs> servants. We need our servants, our slaves. But we don't need as many as we've got because they're, they're sucking up resources. The, they're, they're breathing all the oxygen. <laughs> no, seriously. In the green godless world view, the planet is more valuable than the people on it. In the Christian worldview, the planet as we know it, is going to be destroyed and replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. And the people are more valuable than the planet. Now, that does not mean that the the good Christian is a bad steward. We do not exploit. We do not seek to pollute. We don't seek to destroy. We seek to be good stewards and caretakers of the planet. But no matter how good of caretakers we are in a godly Christ-like way, this planet, as we know it, is being destroyed and replaced. Praise God. Amen. And we value and we seek to redeem people. But we don't buy into this system that the ends justify the means and it's okay to do this to the population because we've got to save the planet. It is a complete corruption. And I can't tell you many good Christians are buying into this worldview. They're missing it. Well, I'm going to... The rest of the psalm I'll let you all read on your own. I want to jump... I want to jump now to Wednesday's lesson. And on Wednesday it asks us to read from the book of Isaiah. Uh, starting in verse 56, this is what it says. Verse 50, we'll read a few verses here. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the, say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, for I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose, to, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. Better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. What does it mean? Do you believe, what do you believe is the central message of this passage? This pa- what's the core important message of this passage? Somebody said the Sabbath. I knew that was coming. That is not the core message of this, of this passage. The core message of this passage is salvation is for all people. 
God is not exclusive. Salvation is for not just Jews, but for the foreigners and for the eunuchs and for the aliens. Salvation is available for everyone. The core passage is that there is one human race that fell into sin in Adam and Eve, and God's salvation is for all, be- all human beings on planet Earth. But having said that is the core message, would you say that, that this passage seems to indicate that there is something about the Sabbath that seems important to the plan of salvation? Would you say this, this text is indicating that? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. It certainly is. Um, what do you think that is? What is it about the Sabbath that is important to salvation? Salvation for all people. And somehow the Sabbath is important. Is it knowing the right day? Is that what's important? Is it avoiding work on the right day? Let me ask you a couple of questions. Did the Jews who crucified Christ have the right day or the wrong day as a Sabbath? Did they avoid opening their businesses and shops on the Sabbath when Jesus was on earth? Did that make them then part of the holy people of God? Hmm. They didn't even pick heads of grain on Sabbath. They didn't even do that. And I'm asking questions here because I want you to understand one can identify the right day of the week and they can identify various behaviors that are called work and a person can refuse to engage in any behaviors that could even approximate anything called work every week on the biblical Sabbath and still crucify the Lord of the Sabbath. When did they know So I have a question for you. If you have the right Sabbath but trust the wrong God... Are you saved or lost? lost? If you have the right Sabbath, but practice the wrong principles, are you saved or lost? Lost. If you have the right Sabbath, but develop the, right, the wrong character, lost. are you saved or lost? lost? If you have the wrong Sabbath, but trust the right God, are you saved, saved. or lost? Saved. If you have the wrong Sabbath, but practice the right principles, are you saved or lost? Saved. saved. If you have the wrong Sabbath but develop the right character, are you saved or lost? Saved. Huh. You guys are a bunch of heretics. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's press this a little farther. Is the Sabbath a gift from God? Yes. yes. For what? For connection with him. Rest, connection with him, for man, for, for, for what's its purpose? God gave it as a gift. Is the Sabbath to assist us in knowing God and experiencing his healing from sin, or is the Sabbath a rule we must keep to prove to God that we're on his side and we're good people? First one. The first one you all said, okay. Um, was the Sabbath made? Yes. You know, a lot of uh, Adventists believe it was not made. That it's eternal. It was always in existence. No, it was made in but Jesus said the Sabbath was made. Yeah. <laughs> According to Ezekiel, it has a purpose. I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws. For the man who obeys them will live by them. Also, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between us so that they would know that I, the Lord, made them holy. Are we saved by law-keeping? No. Are we made holy by law-keeping? Yeah. Yep. Nope. Does the law have power to save any sinner? No. Is the Sabbath able to save and heal from sin? No. But, what, but the Sabbath is a sign of something. 
It's a sign that the Lord makes us holy. So let me ask you this. Is the Sabbath a sign to us that God is the one who makes us holy, or is our Sabbath keeping a sign to God that we are holy? No. Is the Sabbath a sign to us that God makes us holy, or is our Sabbath keeping a sign to God that we are holy? God, watch me. I'm keeping your Sabbath. How many keep the Sabbath to prove to God that they're good and holy and obedient people? That is a... The Sabbath was created by God at the end of creation week. What was going on in the rest of the universe? There was war in heaven. Satan and his angels rebelled. God began to give evidence. Let there be light. Remember, Satan's allegations were not, God is powerless and I've got more power. That's not what the allegations were. And they were not primarily, the Father is not God. His primary allegations were against Jesus. Jesus and I are equals. We're equals. We're, we're equal. There's no difference. This is why the scripture tells us that of the Godhead, it was through Jesus that all things were made that has been made. He was the member of the Godhead who exercised the creative powers to create to demonstrate by action indeed that in fact he is a creator, an infinite God, the infinite God, one of the three, and Lucifer's not. To demonstrate. Because Lucifer is claiming equality with Christ, but he's not equal. And if you're an angel in heaven, I just have you ever considered the immense power used that week? Can you consider the power? We take a few grams of matter. We can take that matter. We can turn it into energy. And we call that a nuclear nuclear explosion. That's right. A few grams. A few grams. Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Wow. That's how much energy is just in a few grams of matter. How much energy to create this whole planet? We can't conceive of the amount of energy that God distributed of himself to create this planet, our sun, the planets of the solar system that is described in Genesis chapter 1. It was an immense display of power. And you have an enemy on, the, on, on a foot and he wants to undermine trust. You think he might take those events and try and twist them? I guess I never said he wasn't powerful. I said he's not good. You can't trust him. He's just flexing his muscles. He's telling you, look, I got all the power. I can wipe you out. Not only that, look, he just made some new intelligent life. He's telling you, if you don't do what he says, uh, he's going to wipe you out and he's going to replace you with some new beings. Have you even read some uh, maybe Christian commentators who said that, in fact, uh, humans were, desi- uh, were created to replace the fallen angels? Have you ever read that in certain Christian commentators? Yes, I, well, it's out there. Ellen White, I think, might even have suggested that. So he says, hey, he can wipe you out, replace you. What does that do to trust? So God says, universe, you've heard the allegations, you've seen the evidence. I rest my case. Take 24 hours aside. And notice what God did on the Sabbath. God stopped using power. He rested 
from using power. He created into time a space and time for freedom to think. No coercion, no pressure. Come to your own conclusion, you're free. So the Sabbath was made in Eden holy because it was invested with truth. God revealed the truth of who he is and how he runs things and built a new microcosm of the universe with two beings with God-like powers. Let us make man in our image. Let them be fruitful and multiply. And as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to come together and create beings in their image, Adam and Eve were designed to come together in unity of love and create beings in their image. A new creation built in the principles of God. And Truth, love, and then freedom. The Sabbath is the embodiment of the core principles of God's character and government. Truth, love, freedom. It is a flag built into time, a sign built into time of the liberties that God gives us. It's a sign of religious liberty, folks. God will not coerce you. That we are really free. And it was built into time so Satan couldn't get rid of it. He, couldn't, he, could, he could pervert our understanding of it. He could try to get us to forget it. And so maybe because he was going to get us to forget it, God in his foreknowledge told us to remember it. But not as a rule, as an evidence of the one who makes us holy, the one who loved us, that he saved himself, gave himself for us, the one who on the cross would not use power to force his crucifiers to kneel and to bow, but left his own creatures free to kill him. And as soon as he did, he rested in the Sabbath, in the tomb. I rest my case. Can you trust me? I've got the power. Can you trust me with the power? And after the crucifixion in Revelation, every time you see this scene in heaven, the angelic hosts and the 24 elders are, are throwing their crowns down at his feet saying, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have the power because he's safe with all the power. So this is what I see happening. And this is what the beauty of the Sabbath is. And those who are Sabbath keepers are those who remember the Sabbath and the sign that it is God who makes us holy. And we admire this God and we want to be like him and how we live our lives. So we present truth in love and leave others free in how we treat them. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the truth. We thank you that this, for this beautiful sign that you've built into time that can never be taken away to remind us that you're the one, the creator God of love, who makes us holy. We ask that you will take and pour your spirit upon us, recreate us, renew us, write your living law of love into our hearts and minds, and enable us to go out into this very dark and perverse world and advance the principles of your kingdom that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.